Acts 19, verse 20. So mightily grew the word. So mightily grew the word of the Lord and prevailed. That's a statement that leads us to look back, does it not? So mightily grew the word of the Lord and prevailed gives us some indication that something, something had occurred that led to this climactic statement, if you will. So mightily grew the word of the Lord and prevailed. When you look at this verse and consider the tenses, literally, what Luke is recording here by inspiration is the idea that the word of the Lord was growing. Present tense, kept on growing. And present tense, kept on prevailing. It was growing and prevailing. Thus, so, in other words, in this way, in this way, the word of the Lord was growing and prevailing. But that leads us to ask this question. In what way, in what way was the word of the Lord growing and prevailing? Isn't that something, incidentally, that we would love to be able to say in any place where the church is located and at any time that the word of the Lord is growing and prevailing where we are? You don't see anything up there, do you? I don't either. <laughs> you should, but you don't. <laughs> so, we can do without it. The word of the Lord was growing and prevailing, but if we go back, and as I just said, wouldn't that be the desire that we would have wherever we are? Here at White Oak, obviously. Would we not love to have it said of us that the word of the Lord is growing and prevailing at White Oak? Now, that doesn't mean that more is being added to this book day by day, that the Word itself literally is growing and prevailing. Obviously, what is meant in this statement in Acts 19.20 is that the effect of the Word was being seen. The effect of the Word was growing and prevailing. It was having the kind of impact that the Word of the Lord will have when it meets with good and honest hearts. The word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed, the New King James says. And the idea there is, thus, in this way, the word of the Lord was growing and prevailing. Now, let's go back a few verses, and let's see what it was that led to this climactic statement in Acts 19 and verse 20. And let me suggest to you that when we go back some verses and we see, we see what produced this kind of growth, this kind of influence in the churches here. And now you see the first slide, and I'm on about the third or fourth here in my lesson. So with me, if you'll get me to, are you there? Acts 19.8? Okay. Uh, very good. We're caught up and operating. Let's go back to verse 8. 
And let's see there the beginning of the characteristics that existed at Ephesus, and that's where we are in this text. Let's look at the conditions that existed there at Ephesus that led to the conclusive statement in Acts 19 and verse 20. And he went into the synagogue. This is Paul now. Third missionary journey, went into the synagogue. He is at Ephesus. And he goes into the synagogue and speaks boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. Reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. Notice the phrase, spoke boldly, spoke boldly. And that suggests to us the first characteristic, which I hope you see up there, courageous preaching. Courageous preaching is one of the elements, one of the ingredients that will ultimately lead us to Acts 19 and verse 20. And you also see, spoke boldly. We emphasize or underline that because that is what it means to, to preach courageously. That is what is involved in courageous preaching. But what does it mean to speak boldly? Does that mean brashness? Does that mean a harshness of speech? No, it means with plainness and openness of speech. It has nothing to do with a bad attitude. Courageous preaching is not brash preaching. Courageous preaching is not preaching that, that um, sends everyone home with uh, an attitude about the preacher that is anything but positive. If those go home with that attitude, they, they must go home and we must make sure they go home with that attitude, not because of how the preacher said what he said, but because it was the Word of God that stepped on their toes and not the attitude of the preacher. Every gospel preacher must be sure to speak boldly, but understand what bold means. It is with courage, but it's the kind of courage that causes one to speak plainly and causes one to speak openly. If you look at Acts 9 and verse 27, and then again also at verse 29, this relates to Saul of Tarsus who became, of course, the Apostle Paul. And right before his convert, or right after his conversion, Barnabas brought him to the disciples at Jerusalem, you may recall, and introduced them, him to them. And they were somewhat uh, fearful and hesitant to accept him because they knew all that he had been doing in terms of persecuting the church. But Barnabas took him, and this verse picks up here, he declared to them, to the church at Jerusalem, he declared to them how he... Saul of Tarsus, had seen the, road, the Lord on the road and how he had preached boldly at Damascus. Same word as in Acts 19, verse 8. Preached boldly. That is, he had preached with openness and plainness of speech. He had, he had preached courageously even to the point that he had to, be, had to be rescued from those who would kill him after he preached boldly at Damascus. Remember, let down in the basket on the outside wall of that city. Then in verse 29, and he spoke boldly in the name of Jesus. Again, the idea of plainness 
and openness of speech. There's another passage in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. And for me, Paul says, pray for me, in other words, here. That's the context. He's asking for prayers. Pray for me that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly, same word we've been looking at all along, to make known the mystery of the gospel, that I may speak, here it is again, boldly as I ought to speak. We must speak boldly. These passages certainly emphasize the emphasis that was given to it by the writers of the New Testament. To speak boldly. There's one other passage that is, I think, very crucial to our full understanding that boldly is not brashly. Not a caustic attitude. Acts 26, 26. When the Apostle Paul was standing before King Agrippa, in his presence he made mention, before whom I also speak freely. Notice that word, freely. The word freely here is the very same word we've been looking at that's translated boldly. Do you think that Paul the Apostle stood before King Agrippa a ruler, and was brash and caustic and bitter in his approach to this man? No, indeed. Just the opposite would have been the case, obviously. But when the word is translated freely here, it's the very same word in the original that is translated elsewhere boldly, as we have already seen. And so the idea we certainly get about courageous preaching as an ingredient that will lead to the Word of God growing mightily and prevailing in this or any other generation, the meaning of courageous is not to shun to declare the whole counsel of God, not to hold back anything that is profitable. As Paul said to the Ephesian elders at Miletus, I kept back nothing that was profitable to you. I did not shun to declare the whole counsel of God. Preachers must never, dec never declare anything but the whole counsel of God, never hold anything back, and every member should desire it and demand it from those at whose feet they sit to hear the Word of God. That whole verse goes on to say, You know these things, King Agrippa. You know, you have a background to know the things of which I speak. I'm convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, speaking of the king, since this thing was not done in a corner. That's something else, isn't it, that reminds us of just how powerful the testimony of Christ through his miracles and through his teaching was. It wasn't done secretly. It wasn't something that somebody heard, maybe Jesus raised the dead. Maybe somebody heard that he healed a man blind from birth. It was not the case that somebody just heard about something and passed the word. No, hundreds upon hundreds had seen these things. They were not done in a corner. Courageous preaching is one of the ingredients that will lead ultimately to the word of the Lord growing mightily and prevailing wherever we are. But a second element is this, confrontation of error. It is inevitable that if we spend much time at all in the kingdom of God, in the church of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that preachers as well as every faithful member, we are going to have to confront error. That's what the Apostle Paul did 
at Ephesus. Same verse we looked at for courageous preaching reveals the confrontation of error. He went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. The King James, I believe there, says disputing, disputing. And that is inherent in the meaning of the word. It does involve disputation. It does involve the idea of of dialogue back and forth. It does involve the idea of confronting error. It does involve the idea of debating. And there's a process here that you see in this verse. He confronted the error, he reasoned, he debated, and then he what? Persuaded. There's the second part of the process. We confront the error, and hopefully as we confront the error with those who are caught up in that error, and they're able to see the error of their ways, then we persuade them to come away from that error and to obey the truth of the gospel. If I know my heart, I hate confrontation. I do not like to confront anything or anyone. And yet I understand and appreciate that it is absolutely indispensable to the work of a gospel preacher, but it is also indispensable to the work of a Christian, to every child of God, to be prepared to confront error, but to do it courageously, openly and plainly, but not brashly, not caustically. Remember 1 Peter 3:15, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always, be ready always to give an answer to everyone who asks a reason of the hope that is in you. Then listen to this, yet with meekness and fear. Be ready to give an answer. In other words, be ready to dialogue, be ready to confront, but do it with meekness, gentleness, and do it with fear. Do it with reverential respect. For whom? For God? Certainly that would be inherent in that passage. But I also believe there is a respect that we're to have for the one who is asking the question, for the one who is inquiring, for the one who is honestly seeking answers and seeking the truth. We must confront the error, but do so with meekness and fear. It is inevitable that error has to be uh, confronted if indeed conversion is to occur. But you know how we have to do it? We have to do it continually. We have to do it continually. Look at Acts 19, 9 and 10. When Paul did confront the error there, he did seek to persuade those who were caught up in that error in the synagogue there as he preached. Some, the verse says, were hardened and did not believe. And when that occurred, what? He gave up. Quit preaching altogether. No, he departed. He did not cast his pearls before swine. He did shake the dust off his feet on this occasion in that particular location, but his preaching continued. He withdrew the disciples. And then... The passage says he reasoned daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued. This continued. This continued. He didn't give up. Noah didn't give up. Nor are we to give up. Never are we charged in Scripture with going into all the world and baptizing every creature. 
But we are charged with going into all the world and preaching the gospel to every creature. And for the most part, men will reject the gospel. But we must continue. And we must continue with confirmed preaching as we continue. That's absolutely essential. And that's the next ingredient at which we look here in this text that leads us to that conclusive and climactic and exciting statement, so mightily grew the word of the Lord and prevailed. Confirmed preaching. Listen to it. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Do we need that kind of preaching today? Absolutely. Do I mean that by confirmed preaching we need miracles today in order to confirm the word? No, absolutely not. Not only do we not need those miracles about which we read here, we cannot have those miracles despite the false claims of so-called miracle healers throughout our world. We do not need miracles because miracles have ceased. Why? Because that which is perfect or complete has now come. And I hold it in my hand, the New Testament of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Remember what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 in that great chapter of, of love where he discussed in that context miraculous gifts and the clamoring that so many in the church at Corinth were having for tongue speaking. They all wanted to speak in tongues. They wanted these miraculous gifts. And Paul reminded them, you are in the infancy of the church here. This is not even what God ultimately has in mind for his people. What he ultimately has in mind is to reveal his complete and final and all authoritative written word and that will guide us from that point on. What point? From the point when it was all completed. And he talked about it, wrote about it in 1 Corinthians 13. At chapter 13 and verse 10 he said, But when that which is perfect is come, that's after saying we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, that which is in part will be done away. When that which is perfect has come, and it is clear from that and every other context in Scripture that what he had in mind was the New Testament in its final and complete form. He went on to say, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. Childish things, miracles. That's exactly what he's talking about. The childish things are the miracles. Not that they were not important, essential. They were to confirm the preaching that was done then, to confirm that Jesus was and is the Christ by the miracles that he performed as well as the teaching that he proclaimed, but those miracles served their purpose as they were performed, and now that that which is perfect or complete has come, they have been done away. When that which is perfect has come, that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, understood as a child, thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, he said back then, but then face to face... Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And that's where we are right now. He went on to say, but now abide faith, hope, 
love, but the greatest of these is love. Remember John 20, 30, and 31? John wrote many other signs, miracles, miracles and signs equivalent, many other signs truly Jesus did in the presence of his disciples, which are not, listen to it, written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that believing you might have life in his name. John is saying the New Testament in its completion and its perfection confirms everything that needs to be confirmed and there's no longer any need for miracles to be performed. And those who clamor to go back to miracles and claim miracles, but they are pseudo-miracles, false miracles, they are actually clamoring for something that was the immature stage of the church rather than the mature and perfect stage of the church. We are now in that stage. So how then can we have confirmed preaching and use this text to support it? Book, chapter, and verse preaching. That's confirmed preaching. Not my opinion, not your opinion, not the creeds of men, not the traditions of men, not the doctrines of men, but confirmed preaching that I can confirm by book, chapter, and verse. Something for which I can always give a thus saith the Lord when it is presented from this pulpit or any other pulpit that should be the case. That is confirmed preaching. And your obligation is to be as the Bereans and to search the scriptures not your better felt and told experience, not some supposed direct operation of the Spirit, some guidance that comes directly and miraculously supposedly because it does not come, cannot come, will not come because it is no longer needed. Search the Scriptures daily to see whether these things are so. Confirmed preaching. Preaching that can be backed up with Scripture and that must be supported by Scripture is that which will lead to the conclusive and climactic statement, so the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. But then there's another ingredient, one more. The courageous preaching, the confrontation of error, the continual preaching, the confirmed preaching, in this context, led and will always lead to converts. Converts who count the cost, and that's what we read about in Acts 19, 18, and 19. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. This is how, this is after some had tried to cast out evil spirits, back at verse 13, some of these itinerant Jewish exorcists, took it upon themselves to call on the name, call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. And here's what they said. We exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. They had seen what Paul was able to do, and they wanted to try it themselves. Seven sons of Siva, a Jewish chief priest who did so. You know how that worked out? Verse 15, the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. 
Verse 17 says, This became known to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Why? Because they had seen that Paul's preaching was confirmed by actual miracles, that these Jewish exorcists couldn't do anything like that. They saw the contrast immediately, and they said, It's time for us to count the cost and become true disciples. And so many came confessing and telling their deeds. Many who had practiced magic, what did they do? Brought their books and burned them. The value of them totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. They were convicted and truly converted. And they counted the cost. And they counted the value of those books as nothing. What about us? Remember what Jesus says to those who would be his disciples? Whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. That's verse 33. You go back to verse 26 and you see that there he makes it abundantly clear that if anyone comes to me, and does not hate, love less, that is, his father, mother, wife, and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Then he illustrates it with those who would be intending to build a tower. Don't you sit down and count the cost before you start to build? Otherwise, you lay the foundation, you realize you're not able to finish it. Count the cost. Then he talks about a king going to war against another king who does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. If he realizes he can't do that, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. Then we're back to verse 33. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has, he cannot be my Disciple, when you have converts to Christ who have truly counted the cost, then there's no question that you'll see the word of the Lord growing and prevailing. When you have these elements that we read about here in Acts 19, courageous preaching, confrontation of error, continual preaching, confirmed preaching, book, chapter, and verse preaching, that is. And when you have converts who have truly counted the cost, then indeed you are able to read what we began reading at the beginning. So mightily grew the word of the Lord and prevailed. What about you this morning? Have you counted the cost, as the song says, if your soul should be lost? It is important to count the cost. But oh, when you, when you count those costs and you realize, yes, it's going to cost me everything. It's going to cost me self. I'm going to have to deny myself. I'm going to have to dethrone self from my heart and enthrone the Savior there and leave him there. But even with that realization, everything, everything that you consider you have to give up is, as Paul said in his case, rubbish compared to the 
excellency, the riches of Christ. I count all these things, he said, remember in the Philippian letter, rubbish for the riches that are in Christ. There's no greater life than the Christian life. Are you willing to count the cost? Truly turn your back upon this world. Turn to the Savior in belief that leads you to repent of your sins, confess Jesus to be the Christ, and then to be buried in baptism for the remission of sins. That's the simple but absolutely essential plan that Christ has given through his word that we must follow in order to be his disciple, his follower. And then will you spend there after the rest of your life supporting courageous preaching and doing as much of it yourself as you can in the context in which you find yourself and in the role that God has given you, confronting error with meekness and fear, continually doing it and never growing discouraged to the point of despair? Will you do it in a confirmed way, always giving book, chapter, and verse? If so, you'll reach others like yourself who will be willing to count the cost and become true converts to Jesus Christ. If you've known that conversion in the past, but you know that conviction is no longer there, and you need to come home to your first love as a wayward child, in repentance and confession of sin that's public in nature, if it's private, you take care of it between you and your God. But if you've brought shame and reproach upon the church and need to come home and restore that example and restore your precious soul, we're eager and willing to pray with you and for you to the God of heaven who loves you and who welcomes you home with open arms. Come now as we stand to sing.